Unearthed Memphis, your Memphis history podcast with hosts Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Unearthed Memphis. We're so glad to be back to you guys after our unexpected two-week hiatus. Uh, We had some computer issues right in the middle of recording an episode a couple weeks back. About 10 minutes into recording that session, our 11-year-old Mac decided it was time to shuffle off this moral coil. Uh, For you Monty Python fans out there, um, our computer was not simply stunned, nor was it merely pining for the fjords. It had (laughs) fully given up the ghost. Yes, it did. So now we have a brand new sparkly iMac, and it is working like a dream. The other one was working like a dream of sorts, but more like a dream where you're like running from a monster or something, and but you can't seem to get your legs to move quickly enough to get away, and every time you look behind you, the monster's closer. That's about how our old Mac worked. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, so speaking of monsters... Not really, but it's a good segue. Yeah. Um, today is the first of our Halloween episodes, which are possibly our favorite kind of episodes. Like we've said before, we are fans of the spooky. So Halloween, even in its stifled state right now due to the pandemic, is still one of our favorite times of the year. We're going to tell you all about the Woodruff Fontaine House, which is one of the beautiful houses in Victorian Village close to downtown Memphis. But how does that fit in the spooky theme? Well, calm down. We'll get there. <laughs> The Victorian Village is a small neighborhood next to Memphis's medical district at the edge of downtown, and the area's most famous characteristics is its collection of 19th century mansions, which are well known for their beautiful architecture. If anyone is not familiar with the Victorian architectural styles for which this area was named, it's really interesting to research, actually, especially if you're a fan of pretty buildings like we are. To even brush past all of the Victorian styles that are present in the world, or even in the U.S., would take a long time and much more knowledge than we possess. So we're going to point out some of the characteristics of the Woodruff Fontaine House, since, well, that's what this episode is about. Right. Uh, Woodruff Fontaine House is considered to be built in the Second Empire French Victorian style, which can be characterized by having elaborate detailing, a heavy cornice, which is a decorative trim where the walls meet the roof, Uh, A square tower located at the center of the facade, a railing around the top of the roof, hooded or bracketed windows, tall, almost floor-to-ceiling windows on the first floor, and steps leading up from the street up to the doorway. If you've ever seen the Woodruff Fontaine house, this should all sound familiar. Uh, Symmetry and balance are very important in this style, and there's a perfect example in the foyer of the house. There are matching doors on either side of the pathway leading to the back of the foyer, Uh, One of them functions as a door, and the other one opens onto a brick wall. It was built there simply to keep the room balanced and symmetrical. And fun fact, the fake door that was put in to create the cemetery has the name of the builders, I believe, signed on the back of it. Which is It's pretty cool if you open it up and see that. It's a a nice little bit of history. Uh, The most amazing homes that still remain in Victorian Village have now been renovated and, like the Woodruff Fontaine, serve as museums that teach visitors about the Victorian era in the U.S. One of the homes, the James Lee House, has been turned into a beautiful bed and breakfast, and the other one is an upscale retro chic bar known as Molly Fontaine's. 
And I actually went to an auction fundraiser at the James Lee house years ago before it was renovated. And wow, did they do a fantastic job because it was bare bones when I first saw it and it is immaculate now. So one day we'll have to staycation a night there and report back on how lovely it is. We will, yeah. Because I'm sure it's it's fantastic. I've seen pictures. Um, And also, Molly Fontaine's is a great place to go out when you want to look cute, hear live music, and have a nice drink with good conversations. I highly recommend it. I personally have not been because no one will take me. Well, once this pandemic (laughs) ends, we'll get all fancy and we'll we'll go have a drink. In the mid-19th century, Memphis experienced a period of growth that can be credited to an influx of entrepreneurs, lawyers, and politicians. Some of Memphis's wealthiest residents built lavish Victorian-style homes in what was the outskirts of the city then, but is now right in the heart of the city. This area became known as Victorian Village, and the main street through the neighborhood was nicknamed Millionaire's Row. As the city expanded, the neighborhood became less appealing and less exclusive, and by the end of World War II, many of the wealthy residents had abandoned their mansions and moved to more affluent areas. Sadly, many of the original homes have since been torn down. All of the remaining homes in the neighborhood are safe from this uh, same fate because they are listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And the Woodruff Fontaine House has quite an interesting history. So Amos Woodruff, And his brother came to Memphis from Rahway, New Jersey in 1845 to expand their carriage-making business. And although his brother returned home to New Jersey, Amos stayed in Memphis and found great success in multiple business ventures. In addition to his carriage-making business, he was involved in establishing two banks, a railroad company, an insurance company, a hotel, a cotton compress firm, and a lumber company. And he also became the president of the city council and ran for mayor twice. In 1870, Amos Woodruff purchased the land next to the Goyer House, now known as James Lee House. That's the one we mentioned earlier that's been renovated and turned into the bed and breakfast. Right. He paid $12,000 for the plot and began construction on the mansion. The house was designed by Edward Cleat Jones and Matthias H. Baldwin, who owned a local architecture firm and would end up costing the Woodruffs about $40,000 to build. Which is, granted in that time, a considerable amount of money, but uh, it is huge. And yeah, it's big. It's, <laughs> wow. Uh, so $40,000, man, that's, that's awesome. Anyway, Edward Jones was the architect behind some well-known churches in Memphis. Uh, First Presbyterian, Second Presbyterian, which is now Claiborne Temple, the first Beale Street Baptist, which was the first church in Memphis specifically built for the black population, and the former home to the Memphis uh, Free Speech, which was the newspaper um, that was edited by Ida B. Wells. It was one of the first newspapers, at least in the city, for the black community. And let's see, Central Baptist Church, which was demolished in 1937. The first steel frame skyscraper in Memphis, which is now known as the D.T. Porter Building. It stands at 10 North Main. Amos Woodruff and his wife Phoebe and their four children, Sally, Molly, Frank, and Cora, occupied the mansion beginning in 1871. Shortly after the home was completed, a home wedding was held for Mary Louise Woodruff, known as Molly, and they also held a Christmas open house that year to give their friends and family a chance to admire their magnificent new digs. But unfortunately, about 12 years later, the yellow fever epidemic, along with the gold panic, forced the Woodruff family to sell the house. 
Nolan Fontaine, an established businessman, purchased the house from the Woodruffs in 1883 for $40,000, and his family lived there until 1929. When the Fontaines purchased the home, the Woodruffs moved into the Fontaines' old home at 103 Madison Avenue, which is close to the intersection of Madison and North Main. So they basically did a swap. Right. Uh, when Nolan's daughter Molly, Molly number two in this story, uh, was married in 1886, he had built a house for the couple as a wedding gift. And that house sits directly across the street at 679 Adams. And this house is still there and operates as the bar and restaurant known as Molly Fontaine's Lounge, after the daughter for whom the house was built. The Fontaines were known for throwing lavish parties in the neighborhood, including a 2,000-guest lawn party where John Philip Sousa was a guest conductor. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) For those who may not know who Sousa was, he was a a famously mustachioed military band leader and composer. He was mostly known for composing a vast number of well-known marches for military bands, such as Stars and Stripes Forever, which is a very popular concert closer for bands around the nation. And was even later adapted and set to lyrics for the Berenstain Bears cartoon theme song. But not Berenstain Bears as we all thought it was. Right, because of the Mandela effect. Yes. I still think it's Berenstain, but you know, hey. Everybody does. (laughs) Uh, The Liberty Bell, which you might know as the theme song for Monty Python's Flying Circus. (laughs) And Semper Fidelis, which is uh, the official march for the U.S. Marines. Sousa was even known as the American March King. If you're not familiar with his works, it's almost guaranteed that you've heard many of them hundreds if not thousands of times in your life. So all that to say, it was a huge deal to have him guest conducting at your lawn party. Right. That's pretty awesome. The Fontaines were also responsible for introducing electricity to the house after it was established in Memphis in 1882. And this replaced all the gas-powered light with electric light. And Nolan Fontaine passed away in the house in 1912, and his wife Virginia stayed in the home until her own death, also in the home, in 1928. And their children attempted to sell the house to an antique dealer the following year for only $25,000. That was shortly after the great stock market crash of 1929, but due to financial situations in the U.S. at the time, the buyer was forced to back out. In 1930, the house was sold to Rosa Lee, the eldest child of James Lee Jr., James was the owner of Memphis Lee Line Steamboats and had a residence next door to the Woodruff Fontaine House, which is the James Lee House that we've been talking about. Right. Uh, Rosa Lee used the house to expand her art school, Lee Memorial Art Academy, which was originally housed in the James Lee House. The school then moved to Hoverton Park in 1959 and established themselves as Memphis Art Academy, later becoming Memphis College of Art. Which is now sadly closed, but we've got our fingers crossed that somebody will reopen it right. one day. My brother went there. Oh, I've got many friends that went there, and we've we've ventured there and bought art and right. other fun things. Mm-hmm. Went to a, a coffee tasting there. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll vamp less and cut yes. some of this out. Yes. The house had fallen into disrepair during the next two years and was unfortunately overrun by squatters, thieves, and vandals. Sounds like a line out of Oliver Twist or something. <laughs> it does. It stood vacant, aside from those squatters, from the time the Art Academy moved until 1961 when the Association for the Preservation of Tennessee Antiquities saved the house from demolition, restored the mansion using money from a public funds drive, and then opened its doors as a historic house museum. When the museum opened in 1962, there were no furnishings at all, nor were there any textiles. 
All of the beautiful pieces that the house is now furnished with have been donated by individuals between the museum opening and present day. Woodruff Fontaine House has now been a museum for more than 50 years. Actually, close to 60 at this point. Yeah. Woodruff Fontaine House has become one of our favorite places to visit in Memphis. And throughout the year, they host all types of interesting and fun events on the property. They host historical tours, focusing on seasonal Victorian garb and furnishing from the Victorian era. There's a 1920s period theme party called the Speakeasy Parlor, and that is a super fun time. They have a murder mystery party called Murder on Millionaire's Row that... Sadly, we haven't been to, but Not yet. we'll hope that they host it again once they reopen after the pandemic. And there are regular ghost tours and spooky lights out investigations throughout the year because the place is apparently very haunted. And they have a fantastic costume encouraged Halloween event called Haunted Happenings with food trucks and drinks illusionists, embalming demonstrations in the basement, ghost tours, live music, and more all on the same night. And we've loved all of their events since we attended our first tour years back, and we go every chance we get. We also highly encourage anybody else to go any chance they get. Definitely. But speaking of haunted happenings, we're going to talk about some spooky stuff, because it's Halloween month after all. So Molly Woodruff, daughter of Amos Woodruff, uh, this is Molly number one, was married in 1871 to Egbert Wooldridge. It's quite a name. That is quite a name. Uh, Their wedding was the first event held at the house shortly after they finished construction. Uh, Molly and Egbert moved into the house following the wedding, and four years later, Molly gave birth to a child. Sadly, the infant died three days later, presumably of yellow fever, in the rose bedroom that Molly and Egbert shared. Three months after the baby's death, Egbert fell out of a boat when on a fishing trip and died shortly thereafter of either pneumonia or a staph infection with similar symptoms. Mm. Molly eventually remarried and moved away from the house, but lost yet another child to illness in that marriage. Molly herself died in 1917, but not in the family home. But apparently, after her death in 1917, Molly did actually return to the Woodruff Fontaine house, just not necessarily in the same form. Spirits are said to inhabit the places where they felt the strongest emotional tie or had the most emotional experiences. So when you think about how impactful her life experiences were in the house, it makes sense. She came from a seemingly happy, well-adjusted, affluent family. Her father was a very successful businessman, and he built a beautiful three-story mansion for them to live in. She was able to get married, surrounded by her family and friends, inside the house. She lived happily with her husband in that house, with the security of having a family close by. And she also experienced the joys of bringing a child into the world. On the other side of the spectrum, though, she experienced the loss of her first child only days into its life and the tragic death of her husband only a few months later. So it makes sense that the weight of those emotions might keep someone tied to the location where those experiences took place. Molly is reported to make appearances, some say mainly to children, on the second floor of the house, especially in the rose bedroom that she shared with her husband, Egbert. According to the museum staff, she has not been a fan of anyone rearranging the furniture in her bedroom. She reportedly was heard expressing her displeasure about them moving things around her room, saying, my bed doesn't go there. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Many people go into the Rose bedroom, uh, and they claim that they can either feel Molly's presence or that they are overcome with sadness and despair, and that lifts once they leave the room. 
The Rose Bedroom is also home to a phenomenon that many people have claimed to have seen over the years. Witnesses have reported seeing depressions form on the bed as if someone is resting, sitting, or maybe kneeling to pray. Molly is also known to move things around the room, rock the rocking chair, or knock items over. And maybe the ones that don't suit her taste. No. She was like, no, out. (laughs) Uh, Another spirit is known to inhabit the Woodruff Fontaine house that's said to be a male. He is known to have touched people to let them know that he's there, and people have said that this is accompanied by a smell of cigar smoke. He was also reported to have snatched a necklace from a woman's neck during one of the tours. Reportedly, this ghost is semi-aggressive towards females. One tour guide claims to have seen a male apparition sitting at the base of the fourth floor tower steps, which she said bore a striking resemblance to Elliot Fontaine, one of Noland and Virginia Fontaine's children. Maybe he is the male presence that is felt in the house. Maybe so. There are other accounts as well, in the basement and on lower floors, about male voices that can be heard by way of EVP. For those of you that aren't familiar with paranormal investigations, EVP stands for Electronic Voice Phenomenon, which occurs when audio recording picks up voices that aren't heard during the recording. Uh, So you listen to them afterwards and the voices will be there. There are many of these that were recorded in Woodruff Fontaine that can be found by a quick internet search. They're kind of amazing, really. So didn't Ghost Hunters do an episode on uh, Woodruff Fontaine House? They did. Uh, Ghost Hunters is on Sci-Fi Channel. And uh, Season 9, Episode 19 is called Don't Forget About Us. And the, the TAPS crew actually came and did an investigation in the house. Um, they found some activity. It wasn't a whole lot of activity, but it was some pretty cool stuff. Awesome. Well, having been to several events at Woodruff Fontaine, uh, this is my little experience. Uh, There is one area that spooks me more than others, and that would be the nursery area. It's creepy. It is creepy. Uh, There's a small offshoot connected to Molly's bedroom, and one of the things that I remember the most about it was there was this black and white photo on the wall, and it almost appeared to be kind of double exposure of a child, and this kid is staring at you very creepily. It it almost looks like it's looking through you. And I've only seen it once and have gone back every time to look and see if it's still there, and it's not. So I don't know where it went to. Um, I know the baby's eyes looked like there were negatives of eyes. Yeah, it was strange. It was very bizarre. Um, And there's just a a general feeling of unease in the bedroom nursery area, which is very apparent, uh, especially with all the nursery dolls that are staring back at you, because, you know, those dolls are really creepy anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, But kind of like has been reported before, just in the that whole area is, you know, you can just feel a presence and of unease and and sadness, kind of like they mentioned before. And I've also heard a story of a little girl that appears, especially with other children around. Uh, So one of the tours that we went on, I was told a story of a lady and her child that were going on a tour of the home. And the guide that was taking the money at the the entrance said, one adult and two children? And the woman replied questioningly, no, only one child? And so when the guide looked up, the other child was gone. So maybe it's the (laughs) little girl from the nursery picture. Oh. Uh, So those are just a couple of spookier things I've encountered, but we're always up for taking tours to see if we can have any more experiences. If you've never had a tour of the house, we highly recommend it. They, of course, as mentioned before, do general history of the house tours if you're not a fan of the spooky, and they're fascinating. 
And I just love walking through the house and seeing all the antique pieces of furniture and clothing. And I think one of the neatest little places to go in the house is actually the attic area that leads out to the widow's walk. It's just a small room that leads out to an area that at the time, if you were standing looking out, waiting for your fella to come home from the river, you could have seen him or his ship. Uh, Because before the city was built and all the skyscrapers were built downtown, you could see all the way to the river from the widow's walk. And uh, they don't always let you up there, but if you go on some of the higher cost tours, we went on one, only one really so far that has been, uh, that that, that going up there has been allowed. Right. There was one of the first um, speakeasies that uh, a friend of ours uh, and I went to um, very late into the night. One of the uh, docents that was there. I don't remember her name, but I'm not going to say it anyway to get her in trouble. Um, That used to be a locked area. So when we were taking an after hours tour, I was like, what's behind that locked door? And she's like, come on, let's go see. (laughs) And uh, so we got to go up there. And again, it was just a little room um, that you like, you still can't go out onto the widow's walk, but you can see the little window where at one point in time you could, but it's just really neat. It's a cool little area. I think that's, that's a neat part of history that a lot of those buildings have because wives would wait for their husbands and just kind of look into the distance. They weren't yet widows. They were hoping to not be. Correct. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, Do any of you have any personal experiences from the Woodruff Fontaine house that you'd like to share with us? If you do, we would love to hear them. And also, if you have any Memphis-related spooky stories, we'd love to hear them as well. Uh, If you send them to us, we'll feature them in our next Halloween episode, and you can email them to us at unearthmemphis at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the story we unearthed. Don't forget to listen to our next episode in two weeks. It'll drop on Wednesday on your favorite podcast listening app. Check out our website at unearthmemphis.com. Follow us on Instagram at unearthmemphis, Facebook at facebook.com slash unearth901, Twitter at unearth901, or you can drop us an email at unearthmemphis at gmail.com. We would love to hear from everyone. Questions, comments, suggestions, corrections, or just general chatter is appreciated and enjoyed. And here's our usual disclaimer. We are not historians. We are simply two people who are interested in Memphis history. We have done research and are trying to provide accurate history as best we can. There's a possibility that some of the statements are incorrect, but we have tried to verify all of the info that we are not, so that we're not putting out any untrue info. To the best of our knowledge, what we are saying is correct, but let us know if you have any things to add or correct. In the show notes, you'll find links to the articles we use to, and book titles, etc. to gather our information. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Unearth Memphis is written, produced, and engineered by Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. The music was written, performed, and recorded by Donnie Wayne Smith and Alan Compton.